Straight people often stop communicating about sex after they get to consent. Yes, we've established mutual attraction and desire. We are going to have sex now. And then straight people stop talking. Pornography has this kind of double, double face, you know, where people are looking at it during late hours at night when nobody knows what they are doing. And at the same time, in front of other people, they are criticizing it and telling people that porn is bad. Erectile dysfunction is usually a condition of poor blood flow. Once you feel safe with somebody, I mean, it is a whole new game with them in the bedroom. If you can't name all the parts and don't know where everything is, this is your portal to pleasure. Basically, like you're, you're like you're in a dark room, the lights are off, and you're trying to put a key in a keyhole that, that you do not know where the door is. Welcome. Welcome to this week's podcast. So Dave did the last one on his own. So in typical twin fashion, we have to level the field and welcome to Stephen Flynn here who's going to lead you through our mashup on sex. Yes, I did say sex and yes, my voice is sounding a little bit sultry because I've been having uh, lots of wonderful times in summer here in Ireland and I think it's quite fitting that my voice is sounding so sultry. Yes, go Steve. Um, okay, why sex? Um, aside from being two horny boys um, growing up in all boys schools where sex was very much objectified, it was came out of the repression of conservative Ireland um, it's something that has always fascinated us, how that this simple act that brings life into the world, this miracle, how it is taboo in, uh, at least in Catholic Ireland. You know, people, many of us are so afraid and self-conscious to talk about it, we're sooner to joke about it or talk top, top level and be slightly uncomfortable about it. Whereas it's such a basic, fundamental part of the human experience that we all get to live and share and be a part of together. So the aim of this series was to explore and debunk the taboos. And now in this epo- episode, we've distilled all the information from our amazing guests into one episode, the short letter on sex. So let's talk sex. Let's explore the uncomfortable by asking the questions that no one asks. We talk monogamy versus non-monogamy, or monogamish, as the wonderful Dan Savage coins it. We talk penetration, intimacy, sexual safety, communication, orgasms, performance issues, uh, rectal dysfunction, porn, ethical porn, opal r- relationships, infidelity and so much more so to start things off we thought we would ask you the question what are your views on sex is it positive is it negative what does sex positivity mean to you or what does sex negativity mean how can we move beyond the association of shame and sex so i ask you just before we start just pause for a second close your eyes depending on where you are in the world maybe if you're driving don't close your eyes but just take a moment just to pause what does sex positivity mean and what's your relationship to sex is it something that is there guilt associated is the repression is it something that's celebrated is it joyous is it as a an opportunity to commune to connect into this wonderful heartfelt intimate experience or is it something associated with other feelings anyway without further ado here we go so sex negativity is, is the lens that most of us are kind of born into. We grow up thinking that sex is a bad thing, it's taboo, or it's really rigid and it should only happen in these certain circumstances, right? Whatever those limited circumstances may be. And we're fed a lot of shame around it, around how we relate to sex. And it's just like this punitive, secretive thing that you're only supposed to do in these really, you know, extreme scenarios, like if you're married, and and that's fine if that's what you choose to do, but a big component of being sex negative is shaming other people for the choices that they have around sex that are different from yours. And so sex positive lens really says the other thing to be true. 
I get to define my relationship with sex as long as it's involving consenting humans. Um, and that's okay, right? However people decide to have a relationship with sexuality is okay. And we are, we're not going to shame other people for what they do, even if it's different. We're just going to make room for there to be diversity in how people are sexual because humans are diverse. So why would our sex lives be any different? That was a segment from the wonderful Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a renowned sex therapist and a doctor, pretty amazing lady. So the background in terms of myself growing up, um, normally I'd say we, but in terms of me as an individual, because this is my time on the mic. Um, we grew up, we went to an all boys school um, being a, and being at home, I was one of four boys. So we didn't grow up in a home where it was very comfortable to talk about sex. You know, our parents came from repressed Ireland where, you know, there was lots of Catholic guilt and shame around it. And going to an all boys school, we quickly realized that if you kissed or had some sort of a sexual adventure with an attractive girl, you got great social credits from the lads. So it was a great opportunity to move up the social pecking order, uh, whether it was visible or not. So we kind of had this slightly strange approach to, you know, it suddenly became objectified, which was really sex negative. And, you know, going to an old boys school, it wasn't like you'd sit and talk to the lads about your vulnerability or self-consciousness. It was more about telling your war stories and how great you were as opposed to saying like how empty it felt and how guilty and kind of how ashamed you felt after it so it really wasn't in this kind of sex positive uh, atmosphere that we grew up so i think it's a wonderful society now is becoming a lot more accepted to have these conversations to move it on to move much more in a sex positive environment and actually to find the degree of comfort within ourselves where we can have these conversations and where we can talk about it kate has a fascinating background here's how she got into being a sex therapist so this was definitely not where i thought i would end up professionally but it it happened really organically. Um, I got into the field of psychology, started working in different prison settings, working with sex offenders. And I just realized that they had no idea um, really what was going on with sex. There was no education that they'd been provided. And so much of their understanding about sex was just non-existent and led to one of the contributing factors um, for their offenses typically. So I got really curious about people's understanding about sex in general and relationship with sex. And as I continued in this work, you know, I went into private practice and I found that not a lot of therapists were talking about sex, but it was something that was a big part of people's lives. So I decided to get more curious about it and, um, and got certified. Here she continues with her thoughts on how she would rethink the sex education system. Create really sort of incremental um, developmentally appropriate, uh, you know, little nuggets, kernels of information, little sound bites that we would start giving to our kids that are secular and really um, appropriately labeling of, you know, body parts, anatomy. And I would talk a lot about boundaries early. Now, there are some school districts and some places in the world that do this very well, but where there are you know, parents who are very well-intentioned, but kind of getting in their own way with sex ed is where they, you know, they're, they're mistaking their religious values or their cultural values to be the only thing that should inform their children. And I really think that, although again, well-intentioned, it, it does their children a disservice because kids don't learn about sex until it's way later than they've already been exposed to it. And they're not learning about things like consent and boundaries and how to recognize what you like and talk about that and recognize what you don't like so you can talk about that. So the shame and the secrecy just creates this 
climate of discomfort around sex and that sets kids up for being exploited it sets kids up for being ashamed i think it increases depression and anxiety amongst teens because they all walk around thinking that they're broken or doing something wrong and then they turn to porn as their primary sex education because it's available and they learn stuff that is maybe fun to watch but really not realistic and sustainable so they're going into their real lives and then they're like what's happening this doesn't look and feel like how i expected it to and I mean, it's just a problem because so many people are unhappy and uninformed in their sex lives and it bleeds everywhere in our society. We continue on to discuss many things, one of which is the concept of safety in a relationship. Safety is something that we often don't think about, but it's one of the most important things if we're going to, you know, ex share our vulnerabilities to move beyond kind of the fear safety. I only realized recently the importance of it to be able to have these really important conversations. You know what I really love about your question? It demonstrates so perfectly what intimacy is really like, right? Sometimes it's messy, it doesn't come out right, it can be awkward, and that's the beauty of it, right? Because we're all imperfect and we all have all of these, you know, quirky edges and spots and stripes. And intimacy is about saying, here's my mess. Can you see me and love me in it? And you know, can you just be careful not to judge me too harshly? Because <laughs> I kind of like the mess over here and the spots over here, not so much, but this is it, right? Here it is. And when we're trying to create that with another person, I think it's so important to recognize that we do have these inherent vulnerabilities. So the gift that you can give yourself and your partner is the gift of safety and non-judgment when you're holding that space for each other. And to just kind of, you know, be curious instead of critical. And then, of course, what safety can really do for you in the bedroom. I think yes. safety is not like, it's not a sexy thing that people go in relationships. I'm looking for someone to make me feel safe. <laughs> but I think it's a really important thing that we're looking for as vulnerable, tender, insecure humans. It totally is. I think people really underestimate the sexiness of safety, if I'm being candid, because once you feel safe with somebody, I mean, it is a whole new game with them in the bedroom because safety allows you to really push your limits and to live in that erotic space that people wouldn't feel as comfortable doing if they're curious about if their partner is going to judge them or if their partner is going to be in power struggle with them or if their partner is going to dismiss their feelings. So I cannot emphasize enough how important emotional safety is in addition to physical and sexual safety. Safety is sexy. I love this. And this is definitely not something that we were ever you know safety always seemed like the most unsexy thing even uh sarah's partner harold will, harold will often say safety is sexy and we'll all giggle but it's like pretty cool harold good on you uh so so for those of you who identify as perhaps like us coming from a somewhat sex negative background or in generally trying to open your minds to a different way of approaching the topic here's some advice on how to start it's so much easier to, you know, program in a sex positive way than it is to unprogram and reprogram. So, you know, to everybody out there who's in our generation and trying to make sense of this and, and, and challenge the sex negativity, I think it's really important to start asking questions like, why do I believe the things that I believe about sex? How did I come to, you know, have this opinion and what research have I actually done to check out if it does align with how I think about the world as opposed to this is an idea that's been given to me and I've just sort of taken it on as truth or fact or the way things are. And anytime you hear yourself saying, well, that's just the way it is, that's a great opportunity to go, ooh, okay, 
that's some unconscious programming. Maybe I can go deconstruct that and really kind of think about if I believe that and want it to be the way it is. Because I think when we really get real with ourselves, most of us want a different relationship with sex. We are just afraid that if we go there, it will cost us uh, security in our relationships because you know, we, we're, we're relational creatures. So most of us will do all kinds of mental gymnastics to make sure that we fit into the groups that are important to us, our family, with our partner, with our church, with our temple, with our community, because we don't want to get ostracized. We don't want to be cast out. And sometimes asking those hard questions can be very evocative and can create this existential terror you know, about, oh God, what's going to happen if I change the way I think about this? So again, you know, asking questions, showing up with each other, being intentional to have conversations with your friends and to do that from a place that is shame-free, judgment-free, and again, curiosity-informed. She goes further with some more practical tips. Yeah, I mean, such a great question. I, th I think one of the things that can be really helpful is uh, as a couple, if you decide you want to read some books about it or check out some videos online together, and then you know, take some time to reflect individually and then come back and share your ideas and do this with an agreement that we're not going to judge each other. We're just going to be open-minded and we're going to sit with information and just process it. So I think, you know, when, when we come to the table and say things like, I have a new idea or I have a kink that I haven't learned about myself before, or I want to try something new in the bedroom, it can create a lot of insecurities in a partnership, um, but it also can create a lot of closeness, a lot of connection when you're able to parse out, well, what about that is erotic for you? Um, I don't know if I'm okay with it, but if I am, what would it look like to try it? Or I don't know if I'm okay with it. Is there something else we could do to scratch the same itch? Right when we come to the table and and like create options and get really curious and educate ourselves together, then it can be an adventure just in having the conversation. And it doesn't need it doesn't even mean that anything needs to change. It can even just be a conversation. Now let's talk porn. Where does that fit into our world of sexuality? Does it have a place? Do you watch porn? Do you approve it? Do you disapprove it? I remember as a 13 year old boy in prez and i remember one of the lads showed up one day with a porno mag and this was obviously pre-mobile phones pre this and someone a porno mag and i'd never seen one before and the lads all started ripping pages out and putting it in their pocket and taking it home obviously to you know to masturbate with but i remember getting one and i remember hiding it in a plastic bag and bringing it down by the beach it was under a tunnel and i remember hiding it under a rock there and that was my secret little porn stash i know this is strange to talk about however there you are so porn is something that is just wow it's hard to even relate to and growing up in a world where it's just so available and to so many people they turn to that this is their basic paradigm of what sex is it moves sex to be about connection about intimacy about heartfelt connection into performance into gymnastics and kind of it's really misogynistic i think it's yeah anyway so do you approve it do you disapprove it here is more from the wonderful dr kate um, well, here's the thing, like, just like alcohol, just like, like warm gooey donuts on a Sunday morning, the, the medium is not necessarily the problem. So visual erotica or technology, these are not the bad guy. The way that we relate to them and the way that we assign meaning to them are what can define whether it's healthy or unhealthy in our own individual 
you know, consumption of it, and then certainly in our relationships. So with porn, I mean, it's available everywhere. And soft porn is, is going on on social media all the time. And I think it's, it's important for couples to really get clear around what they're okay with, why they are okay with it or not, what their boundaries are, and come to terms about agreements that they can actually both live with. Um, it really doesn't work if one person says, yes, okay, I'll do that, and they're not okay with it because they'll start doing it on the sly and then resentment builds, and that's when things like infidelity happen or betrayal happens. Um, so, you know, the create agreements that really are sustainable and, and then that can really create for them an opportunity to consume th these medium in, in a way that is enlivening for their sex lives and not destructive. But also, I think, you know, we look at porn, we look at things as this like dirty, bad, gross, you know, sinful thing. And so much of that is shaped by our sex negative lens in this world. So, you know, if, if you're somebody who thinks that porn is inherently bad, it's probably going to cause a bigger problem in your relationship than somebody who's like, yeah, okay. You know, porn is porn. It's a fantasy. It is what it is. Let's create some, some boundaries around it so that we can both enjoy it or you can enjoy it or I can enjoy it in a way that works for our relationship. So it's less that the thing is bad, like say porn, an example, it's not that porn is the problem, it's more how we relate to it. And if we have insecurities or if we have things, we might be susceptible to being addicted to it or believing that it's real. Or maybe like, maybe could you talk about like porn and teenagers? Because as you said mm -hmm. that like, you know, in sex ed, you'd obviously prefer that people were, they were, there was a more of a sex positive script being taught in sex ed that people didn't, yeah. you know, resort to porn as their main means of education. Because a friend of ours is the chaplain in the local school and he deals with a lot of teenagers when they've got problems. And he says that like, mm -hmm. you know, this is in secondary schools. He says that they're, you know, choking is very common and like, you know, all these, kind of more pornographic type yeah. ways of having sex seem to be more common. And yeah. I just wondered if you could talk about that. Well, one of the things that I think is really dangerous about porn for young people is that it's free. And what I what I mean by that is when, when we have a lot of porn that's available for free, it's it's being created in a way that will create will engender a lot of views and a lot of traction, right? So the more extreme wins the game in terms of the algorithm. So people are exposed to things that are really dangerous. They don't necessarily understand how to implement it in real life in a safe way. And strangulation is something that, you know, I'm seeing pop up all over the place uh, with young people. And there's nothing necessarily bad or wrong about having that kind of um, sex play, but it's so important that people have appropriate information and education about how to do it safely because it can, it carries with it, you know, a pretty significant uh, risk of long-term injuries. And a lot of kids just aren't doing it safely. Um, so that's one point. But the second point is that there are a lot of really um, ethical, uh, ethically produced porn uh, options out there, but they're behind a paywall because they are ethically produced. So the people who are in them and the people who create them get paid appropriately. And it's produced with people who are guaranteed to not have been trafficked or exploited or coerced into being a part of it. And they're modeling healthy boundaries, consent, safer sex practices, and things that actually are um, helpful in the education and titillation of our minds. So I would love to see and, and again, I'm, if I were queen of the universe, give me my cape, please. I would love to see some regulations about uh, put in place to help protect the um, uh, 
the porn that is available and to make uh, make available things that actually integrate healthy examples of sex too. Kate finishes on porn in terms of addiction. So there, there's a lot of controversy about sex and porn addiction in, in the mental health field. There are some people who really vehemently deny that it even exists. And there are some people who are, are probably over-diagnosing and, and over-conceptualizing it. Um, I'm sort of in the middle around this. I, I do think that a lot of people can become very compulsive with their sexual behavior. And porn is something that I've seen um, become a home for that compulsivity because it is available in this free uh, vehicle and the, the 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 mechanism of technology because it's such a quick visual stimulus, it, it can actually create for the brain so much more of a dopaminergic process. Meaning that when you're clicking something, you can be like, oh, and then you just click again and find something new. You click again and find something new. So you're training your brain to enjoy the novelty of it. And so it's not necessarily that porn is the thing that you're getting addicted to. It's the ritual of seeing something exciting, clicking and chasing and finding something new. So what ends up happening then for a lot of people who find themselves in this situation is they go into their real life, they, are tr they try to be intimate with a partner, and they're not getting all of the dopamine of the newness that you can get when you're when you're self-stimulating and watching porn. And now there's all this interfering, interfering, I'm going to put that word in quotes, um, stimuli of another person in the room. So it can engender anxiety and fear where porn's never going to judge you. You know, porn thinks you're great all the time. Everybody there just thinks you're a superstar. They just want you to have a good time. But your partner in real life has real needs and also has smells and sounds and breath and their skin sweats and has different texture. And so there's a lot of other stimuli um, activating different senses in your body. So when we condition ourselves to experience pleasure in this kind of one directional experience of porn, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's to the ex at the expense of um, stimulus with other people or stimuli with other people, then our brain gets really organized around this being erotic and, and has a hard time processing all of the other emotional and physiological stimuli that go with having a partner in real life. So it can be kind of confusing for people because they want to be intimate with a partner, but their brain's like, wait, what? There's no new stuff going on. This isn't moving as fast as porn. And, it, and all my other senses are going off. I don't know. I don't compute. And then their body doesn't cooperate and they get very frustrated. We told Kate was the perfect opening for this episode in order to set the tone of what's ahead. As now we go deeper into the subject of sexuality and its nuances. So without further ado, here's our next guest, the sexpert himself, Dan Savage. 99.99% .99 of the sex people have, which is for pleasure, not for making babies. Even people who want babies only make one or two or three, or if they're Irish overachievers, um, like the <laughs> Brady's at the end of our block at St. Ignatius, um, 13, uh, you have a lot more sex than you do kids. So what's sex for? Is it for kids or is it for something else? Primarily, it's for something else. It's for pleasure. It's to cement the partner bond. It's for release. It's for that human need for intimacy and touch. That's what sex is about and for. And those are the conversations we had with our son. What sex is really for is pleasure. And that's what's usually left out of sex education. Most sex education is reproductive biology, how to make a baby, which isn't that difficult to do. Uh, sometimes it's harder to avoid than it is to do. What's hard is talking to people about what you want, figuring out what it is that you want, 
and having those conversations with people really means showing them who you are and who you are is not always who you're supposed to be. And that's hard and that's scary. And that's what a sex education should cover. Reproductive biology, you can cover that in like eight minutes or less. So Dan has coined the world's most influential sex advice columnist by The Guardian. Dan's graphic, pragmatic, and humorous approach changed the cultural conversation about monogamy, gay rights, religion, and politics. Having run a sex advice column for over 30 years, here's what he used to say about the common question, the most common question he receives. Uh, but a lot of things have changed over the years. I'm really pleased and proud to say that one of the questions I used to get constantly, I now get very rarely. And that question was 30 years ago, am I normal? I got that question all the time, every day in the mail. Someone would like write a long question. And then at the end, am I normal? And I wow. think people over the last 30 years have begun to understand that when it comes to human sexuality, variance is the norm. So however, however more unique, you know, uniquer, I'm not sure that's a word. However, you know, as you, the more unique you are, the, the more normal you are in a kind of paradoxical way that your difference is what makes you human, what makes you a normal human, different from other humans sexually and in all other ways. But when it comes to human sexuality, variance is enormous. So I don't get, and people get that now. And I didn't, I don't think people used to get that. And so I used to get that question, am I normal every day? People had that anxiety. Am I normal? Am I normal? Am I normal? They wanted to be reassured that they were normal. And for the first 10 years, I feel like in my column every week, I would say, no, you're not normal. And so what? And I don't have to say that anymore. That was amazing. I think Dan's phenomenal. For any of you who haven't read Dan's column or listened to his popular podcast called Lovecast, Dan holds a safe space for people's love, sex, relationship, kinks, and sometimes damn right, like ridiculously strange questions. Really, there are no boundaries to what people ask. And he's one of the most non-judgmental non people in terms of how he gives advice. It's incredible. Variance is the norm when it comes to human sexuality. And it, we used to have it really in some places beaten into us that conformity was the expectation. And if conforming didn't come easily to you, and perhaps it does come easily to some, some people are heterosexual and I love and support heterosexual people. Some people are want monogamy and some people want marriage and a lifetime commitment. And all of those things are quote unquote normal. But when you think about sex on any given night, the majority of the sex happening all over the world is not necessarily monogamous, not necessarily heterosexual, not necessarily procreative, not necessarily within the bounds of matrimony. So what's normal is what we've been told is not normal. And what's normal or expected of us is actually abnormal to the point of near freakishness. When discussing the concept of finding the one in your love life, Dan has a really great response that just even I quote regularly to people just to kind of go, go against the grain of this Hollywood. I must find my soulmate. It's a lovely idea. And I think it's a hyperbolic compliment that you pay someone, you call them the one, you treat them like they're the one. And in the naming them the one and treating them like the one, they can become the one for you. But there is no the one. There's maybe a 0.67, a 0.74, and it's your job to round that motherfucker up to the one. <laughs> but that's an act of will. And, and you do that, you know, you love and accept someone for their faults. You love and accept someone, even though they're not everything that you might want or need in one human being. And you have to accept that they're doing the same for you. They're rounding you up too. And there's beauty in that. And there's something lovely about that. 
The one is a person that you create. Just like, you know, a couple, a marriage, a relationship is a myth often that two people create together. It's a story they tell each other about each other and about what they mean to each other. And sometimes that story has to be revised, but it is a story. And the one is a, I don't want to call it a lie. It's a compliment. It's an exaggeration. It's an, it's a rounding up process. And I see it also as a damaging myth. If you don't understand it as a compliment, if you don't understand it as hyperbole, uh, you know, you're the only one I ever wanted. I only have eyes for you. All these things we say to our lovers that our lovers know isn't true, you know, that they're not true, but we say them and it's the saying them and the desire to say them where the meaning lies and the truth of the lie lives, right? But where I see the one is potentially damaging is I hear all the time, from inexperienced people or naive people or people who don't get that it's a compliment you're paying someone to call them the one who think, okay, I'm in this great relationship. I really love this person. We get along great in all these sorts of ways, but I have this doubt in the back of my head that they're not the one that somewhere out there in the world in this jumble of seven or 8 billion people, the one is out there and I have to go find that person. When in reality, there's many hundreds of millions of potential the ones out there for you. And if you can see it for that, then you're not going to be hunting for perfection. There is no perfect fit. There is no person out there that you're never going to fight with. There's no person out there you're not going to have conflict with. There's no person out there who's going to meet all of your needs and you're going to have a seamless, frictionless relationship with. It's going to be messy and complicated and contingencies will have to be made and compromises will have to be made. And you'll have to accept some things that maybe you know, you didn't want to accept. I always like to say there's no settling down without some settling for. And people who believe in the one believe they should never have to settle for anything. And that ends a lot of relationships that shouldn't end. People wind up breaking up with people because they're not the one and then realizing a decade later, they were close enough, closer than anybody else has come since. He continues with this great analogy. I know it's not even telling people to go find a needle in a haystack. It's telling people to go find a needle in a needle stack. That <laughs> somewhere in this mix of 8 billion people, there's one person. Good luck. And no, somewhere out there, there's tens of millions of potential or hundreds of millions of potential people who could be wonderful partners for you and that you could be a wonderful partner for. That's a lot less existentially depressing or distressing to hear than there's one person good luck. Go find them. There's lots of potential partners out there for you. Enjoy. When asked what is the secret to success of being married for 30 years, he responds with. People, I've been with my husband for 30 years. People say like, how do you make it work? And we sometimes look at each other and say, not good communication, not an active sex life. Although we do communicate, we have an active sex life. We sometimes just look at each other and laugh and say, we just keep not getting divorced. Like we have serious conflicts and big fights that, you know, sometimes I look at my friends who, you know, can't keep a man and who complain to me and they break up with people for shit that Terry and I like regard as a Tuesday. Like, yeah, yeah, we had like a big fight on Tuesday, but now it's Thursday and we're totally getting along. And so I think being able to let go and forget is an important skill. And there's something I always call the price of admission. You have to identify those things about your partner that you can't change, that you may not like, uh, but you're willing to accept. You know, if you want monogamy and your partner can't be monogamous and is going to cheat on you, 
okay, that may be a price of admission that you can't pay. That's too steep a price for most people who want monogamy to pay. But, you know, the example from our lives I use is my husband's kind of a slob and I clean up after him. And I used to yell at him about picking things up and putting things away. And then one day I just kind of followed around putting things away and picking up. And I was like, you know what? This is a price of admission I'm willing to pay to be with him. I will pick up after him. There's less conflict. You know, it takes less energy for me to put things away than to yell at him to go put the things away he didn't put away. And it's worth it. And if you can identify those things that, you know, you may never be happy with, but you're just not going to fight about anymore. And then you step around them. I think that's really key. Because you think of the couples you may know personally where they're like they're bickering all the time or there's constant conflicts and they're always in conflict over the same fucking bullshit. And you just want to <laughs> say to them, like, this is never going to change about your husband. This is never going to change about your wife. If you can't stand this, end it. But if you are going to stay, for God's sake, stop complaining about it because you know it is just a part of it. And you should be able to do that to, to, to stay in a relationship. So sometimes you know, it's good to communicate, but sometimes it's good to shut the fuck up. I love the concept about the price of admission. I think it really, it really kind of frames thing in a lot more practical manner because there is a price of admission, whatever. And like in terms of me and my wife, Justina, probably the price of admission that she has to pay is that one, I have an identical twin. And often when I have issues, I instead of going talking to her, I typically go to Dave first just because... I guess we're identical twins. Oh, the price of admission, she calls me, I won't say what she calls me, but I'm very particular about putting things back where they go. And when they're not, I'm kind of like, why don't you put it back? Like, I can't understand it, where she's way more fluid. Everything has a movable place. And I think that's one of the price of admissions that uh, I have to pay. And I regularly battle with in my own mind. But uh, at times I've, I, I think we, we used to go to see, you know, in our relationship, we used to go see a marital, um, what would you call it? Tony? He was really cool. A marital advisor or coordinator, expert, a lovely man. Anyway, we go and chat and he'd more experience. He'd been married for 40 years and he was just a really white, wise, lovely man. And he always said, if you can go from, and it kind of stayed with me, if you can go from like, you know, getting aggravated by others, differences to suddenly going to accepting each other's difference to get to the point where you actually celebrate each other's differences then you're in just a totally different marriage and i think that's a great one so i think the price of mission really creates the parameters that there is a price of mission and if we can accept it and if we can even get to the place of celebrating i think it can really move our relationships into a wonderful different place now we lead into an area which is super interesting. I'm personally a monogamous relationship that suits me and my wife really well. However, just because it works for us doesn't mean it suits everyone. Here's what Dan has to say on the topic of monogamy. Uh, Dan, one thing I'd love to, you coined the phrase monogamish. And I think it's very relevant because again, leading on from that sense of perfection and perfection society, I wonder if you could talk about this because I think it's very, again, in that kind of vein of forgiving, there's a sense of acceptance. There's a lot more fluidness of it. Monogamy is the only thing humans attempt where perfection is the only standard for success. Monogamy is the only thing where we tell people, if you can't do this thing flawlessly for 60 years, you were no good at it at all. And then we wonder why monogamous relationships are so fragile often. We tell people that an infidelity is unforgivable, that if somebody cheats, it means they don't love you and never did love you. And the relationship was a lie. We're setting people who want to be monogamous up for failure. What we should be telling people that is that if someone is with you for 60 years and they only cheated on you once or twice, they were pretty good at monogamy and they probably loved you. 
rather than saying to people that they were terrible at it and they never loved you and the marriage or the relationship was a lie, you know, infidelity happens. And that's where really monogamish comes in as a concept for me, that monogamous is perfection and monogamish is like human. A plus or A or B plus. Yeah. And it's a term I coined to describe my relationship with my husband many years ago because we were not monogamous. You were monogamous for four years and then we were not monogamous. And I had written something about us being monogamous and then we weren't anymore. And I had to kind of come out about it because I didn't want people to find out we were not monogamous and then claim we had been lying the whole time we'd been together. And this was at the height of the marriage equality debate in the United States. And we were kind of a prominent gay couple and parents. And so, you know, when we came out as not monogamous, people began to assume we were having like a million sex partners and we were much more monogamous than not at the time. And so monogamish, like we were mostly monogamous. And I think that's what a lot of couples are, if not always physically in practice, at least inside, that even if you are physically monogamous, to describe yourself as monogamish allows for desire for others, attraction to others. We all know that we're attracted to people other than our partners. And yet many of us freak out when we see any evidence that our partners are attracted to anyone but us which is a little crazy and creates conflict in relationships where conflict doesn't necessarily need to exist. Think about the letters I get, the calls I get from people who are wasting time and having fights, policing their partners about something they should just accept as true. Yeah, your partner is sometimes attracted to other people, just as you are sometimes attracted to other people. That doesn't mean they're going to act on it. It's not a betrayal to be attracted to other people. They can make a monogamous commitment and honor it, but have a monogamish heart as we all do. People shouldn't be inconsiderate. It doesn't mean you should ogle the waiter or, you know, flirt with somebody in front of your partner in a cruel way. But the amount of energy and time people waste scrutinizing their partner for evidence of what is just hardwired into the human condition. We are not a naturally monogamous species. We pair bond. I think that's real. The science is there that that's real, but we're not monogamous. What does pair bond mean? Pair, pair bond, uh, like, is that like the way they were, like swans? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So all these bird species that were held up as examples for humans, like, oh, look at these birds. They could be monogamous. Why can't we? Even though we're, you know, we're monkeys and apes. Why can't we be monogamous like these birds? Well, then along comes genetic testing and we find out that all these birds, although they pair bond, are madly cheating on each other slipping away from the nest and mating with other partners, but then returning to the nest and the couple to, you know, raise the, the you know, hatch the eggs that were, that were fertilized by some other bird. So all these birds that were held up to us as examples of like monogamy and how monogamy should be easy, we now know weren't strictly monogamous. They were socially monogamous as many humans are, you know, they presented as a monogamous couple, but sexually not necessarily. Social monogamy and sexual monogamy are two different things. Dan continues with the concept of monogamy and where it comes from. We wouldn't even need the concept of monogamy if it was true that when you were in love with someone, you wouldn't be attracted to anybody else. We wouldn't have to make monogamous commitments consciously. They would be made for us unconsciously. We wouldn't have the concept. There wouldn't be a word for it. That we have a word for it is proof that just being in love with someone doesn't make you default to monogamy. 
Yeah, and why did it develop as a concept? Is this more because society well, runs better uh, with religion? Is this religion largely based? Or is it... A lot of people theorize that it has something to do with religion, the emergence of agriculture, uh, the emergence of, of property, even capitalism, that when there was something to pass on to your children, it mattered very much knowing which children were your children. And at that point, women had to be locked up. Uh, and, you know, this patriarchal culture emerged, which was all about assuring men who could never know for sure if the kids were their kids that the kids were their kids further into the podcast we discuss negative feedback and how he deals with it and people's response to his own relationship and to monogamy the thing that drives me nuts i don't think people who are in monogamous relationships are doing it wrong or wanting something that they're not entitled to want and i offer them my support and my best advice to how to like be monogamous sustain a monogamous commitment, how to avoid the sexual boredom that can result in an infidelity that can blow up a monogamous relationship. So I don't think monogamous people are doing it wrong. But what I hear all the time as a non-monogamous person from monogamous people is that I'm doing it wrong, that I'm not really in love, that if we were really in love, we couldn't do this. It has happened to me more times than I can count that someone, sometimes a friend or a relative, but mostly strangers who don't know better, will say to me, you know, I've read about you and Terry, or I heard you give that talk. I couldn't do what you and Terry do because I value commitment too highly. And I look at them and say, I've been with Terry for 28 years. At what point do we get some credit for being committed to each other? We're committed to each other. We're not committed to monogamy. And half the time, the next thing out of someone's mouth when they say, I couldn't do what you do because I value commitment too highly is all three of my marriages were monogamous. <laughs> And it's like, okay, so you're committed to monogamy. And so all of your marriages have been monogamous because you have dumped people one after the other. And so you're a serial monogamous. You're non-monogamous. You're just non-monogamous one at a time. I love how Dan thinks and his amazing ability to make us reflect on the things that we just take as a given. What I really appreciate is that he also applauds monogamous relationships that work. He's not against them, but he's just looking at the facts and to see that there's no one size fits all. And now for a great segment on what should be learned from the gay community. Nothing makes you better at sex than communication. Straight people often stop communicating about sex after they get to consent. Yes, we've established mutual attraction and desire. We are going to have sex now. And then straight people stop talking because it's going to be penis and vagina or PIV intercourse, as it's usually called in my business. PIV, <laughs> that's just assumed. That's a default. That's what straight sex is. When a man and a man go to bed together for the first time, they get to consent. You know, both guys are interested. They've mutually established desire. And then they begin to talk. That's the beginning of the conversation about sex, because what happens next can't be assumed. It has to be negotiated. That makes gay people better at sex than straight people. We're not communicating because we're more highly evolved or smarter or more thoughtful. We're communicating because we can't avoid it. We have to have a conversation because we don't default to PIV. We don't even default to PIB or penis and butt because there's two penises and two butts. So whose penis and whose butt requires a conversation if that's even gonna <laughs> if that's even gonna happen um you know gay people we took marriage from straight people but we still let straight people get married because we're very generous that way if there's anything that straight people could take from gay people it's the four magic words that starts every same-sex encounter the first time two guys are going to have sex 
one of them looks at the other and says, what are you into? I love this. It seems so simple to have communication or to have those conversations. And I think he expresses it so well. The conversation only starts when you suddenly actually go to have kind of more an intimate physical relationship with someone in the gay community. And I think that's amazing because so much of kind of heterosexual, intimate relationships you're afraid to have those communications. You're afraid to have that conversation. I think the way he describes it is just fabulous and there's so much to be learned from it. And I think it is, you develop a far safer space for all parties when you can have those communications. And finally, we end with Dan and his thoughts on sex education in schools and on porn. Particularly young people who are exposed to a lot of pornography need to be told what they need to hear most is what you've seen in porn is not what's expected of you. In a long-term relationship as an adult, Certainly not what's expected of you at 15 with your first boyfriend or girlfriend, that you can take it slow. There are degrees of intimacy and ways to express yourself sexually that are low stakes, low risk, comforting, comfortable, and also are enjoyed by adults frequently. Like kids have this idea that adult sex lives are all just fucking, 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 or sucking, sucking, sucking. And adult sex lives are often not that, or not always that. And it's still an adult sex life. But Dan and Dr. Kate seem to have the same view on porn. What was interesting from Kate's episode is that she mentions ethical porn. Something neither I or Dave has ever heard before. What is ethical porn? Do you know what it is? I don't know if you do. Maybe you do. So we thought we'd reach out to the ethical porn expert. The person who coined the term, the, the term, always struggle with my T's. Ethical porn filmmaker herself, the wonderful Erica Lust. And yes, her name Lust, you might think, is a pseudonym, but it is not. So she is phenomenal. So my first time with porn was, you know, a video cassette. The second time was a DVD. Uh, so it was a lot more difficult to find it. But my, I, I had, as you said, I was studying political science and I was into the whole kind of idea of trying to understand the world we live in, power structures, analyzing, deconstructing, figuring out stuff. And when I was watching porn, uh, I had this feeling that my body did like it. My body did react to it. I felt, you know, horny. I felt good. But at the same time, my brain didn't like it. I didn't like what I was looking at. So I was kind of upset with myself. Hmm, why am I, you know, why am I reacting uh, in a positive way to something that I don't really like? And I couldn't stop thinking about that. So uh, for me, it was a conversation starter I had with lots of people. And it became pretty clear that most my most of my friends, most of my male friends, they had a very easy time with porn. They used it in their life. They liked it. It was no, no, no doubt for them. Whether most of my female friends, they had a very similar situation to mine. Something didn't really work out. Some liked it, some didn't like it, you know, but there was kind of trouble. Something didn't work. So I started to think about that and I uh, found a wonderful book by a film professor called Linda Williams. Uh, the book was called uh, Hardcore, The Frenzy of the Visible. And in this book, she kind of explained that pornography, not only as as you know as porn as what we know but as actually as a discourse of sexuality and of masculinity and femininity and as a film genre somehow and i thought that that was extremely interesting and i realized through that book that that porn was actually mass media 
because so many people were looking at it. And look, today, there are even more people looking at it. So if it was mass media back then, today it's multi-mass media. Uh, and that it had an impact on society. And that's kind of how I started to think about it. So for me, I, the questions I started to ask myself was, can I make it differently? Is there a way of making, you know, this kind of good feeling I get from porn? Can I do that with good values, with the values that I would like to put into a film? Erica's approach to porn is very different from what you might have seen or heard of from the mainstream media. That most of the porn that's out there on the internet is made by men for men. And that the idea uh, that that I kind of how how women are being portrayed and also how men are being portrayed, but especially how women are being portrayed is as some kind of beautiful object, some kind of vehicle to male pleasure and male sexuality and very few times the story is actually from our point of view and I am strongly believing that if more women and others you know I'm not only talking about women here because I think it's very important to have a bigger perspective and obviously we need a lot of female voices but we also need LGBTQI plus voices we need more pork people we need people from different realities and different backgrounds telling their stories through this media that in this case is pornography. And I know that for many people, this space can be a little scary because people have such a negative perception of pornography in general. You know, pornography has this kind of double, double face, you know, where people are looking at it during late hours at night when nobody knows what they are doing. And at the same time, in front of other people, they are criticizing it and telling people that porn is bad, you know, and that it's not something that you should enjoy. But then they do it anyhow. And I think that that we need to kind of stop this hypocrisy. I think that we can, that I think that porn can be both. I think that porn can be good and porn can be bad. I don't think that it's entirely one thing or the other. I think that it's uh, just a media. It's a type of film where we are portraying sexuality and uh, that you can do that with whatever perspective you have as a creator. So for me, for example, it has been very, very important to tell stories that feel truthful to me, that feel relatable to me, where I can see, you know, my characters uh, being uh, real in the aspect of, of feeling like real people, you know, not being, and especially I want, you know, the women to have their own agenda, to be there because of their own pleasure, because they want to be there. I want to see my characters in my film having, you know, a great moment together because that's how I see sex I see sex as something you know where we are living a wonderful thing together it's not something where one person is pleasing the other and that's it uh, and I think that it's extremely important to show to people situations where you can relate to the female pleasure where it's not only four minutes of heavy kind of you know penetration and then she comes and everybody is super happy and you know as a audience you know that's completely false and you can think you know relate to it in any way uh but you know if if we as women if we see other women having 
what as at at maybe it's real pleasure or maybe it's simulated pleasure, but at least it looks real, you know, to us, where we can see women using their own hands or you know their lovers' hands or 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 toys to help, you know, to help some kind of tutorial stimulation. I think that for so many young women growing up today, that would be uh, a huge help in not feeling that there's something wrong with them. Because this I hear all the time, you know, young women coming up to me, wanting to talk to me and telling me, Erica, you know, I think something is wrong with me and my body because, you know, I'm, 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 I'm having sexual relationships with men and I, I can't come, I can't orgasm, my body's not reacting. And why is that? Well, many times it's because they learned of sex from the pornography that they've seen online and they think that that is how it should be done and that kind of sex uh, is not stimulating them in, in in a real physical way so if so many of us are watching it then clearly the answer is to create alternative porn porn that shows reality and not the performance porn that young people are coming across and thinking this is what is expected of them and what having sex means as, like Dr. Kate and Dan says, Erica agrees porn has become sex education. Pornography has become sex education to this generation of, of children and young people, teenagers, etc. growing up, uh, whether we like it or not. You know, it was never it was never meant to be this the way. I think that most people making porn, they never really sat down and started to reflect about, oh my God, my work is gonna be seen by all these people and it's gonna have an impact on their life. You know, that that's not really how this industry works. Most people who are in the in the in the porn industry, in the adult industry, they are uh, making adult entertainment for adults. They are not thinking about the, the sex education aspects of their work. Porn seems to be given a responsibility it was never meant to have, to fill the gaps where we as a conservative society have failed. Here's more on this really important point from Erica. Many young people are actively looking out to find information about sex and to figure out how are people actually doing it? What is sex? How, how, what does it look like? Who is doing it? And, and they have, they have questions. They have many, many questions. If, and if nobody is answering all these questions, everybody's kind of putting their head in the sand and saying, mm, I don't know. And, and many adults, they do this, not because, you know, they do it because they honestly, they don't feel secure about their own sexuality. They don't, they, maybe they didn't have the sex education that they should have had when they were younger. And they don't know how to have these kind of conversations. So for me, uh, you know, as I am working in this field, uh, it is very important to talk to people and to help people uh, in their kind of communication and I had I had so many 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 conversations with other parents you know coming up to me and say hey Erica you know you 
you do this kind of films, you know about this, like, what can I do? What should I do? How am I supposed to talk to my kids about this? So uh, me and, and, and my husband, we were talking about this. And then we decided that it was time to kind of to create a, a project. Uh, and we created a site online. It's a nonprofit. It's called the porn organization dot org. So who are the people who own and create all this content that are giving out this fantasy performance version of sex and how it's become so readily available to all? Like, how has it come to be free and so prolific? Well, it's not to start with, it's not free. Even if it's yeah. offered for free online, it's not free. It's obviously cost money to make it, etc. But what is happening is that many of these platforms, they are have been during many years stealing content from content producers and they have put it out there to the world without having people paying for it. Uh, there's... Uh, I mean, it's kind of a long story how this company, because there's one company, one big company in the porn world called MindGeek. Uh, if you look for them online, you will have a feeling that this is a tech company because the only words you will find on their websites are kind of tech solutions, etc. But they are the, <laughs> the biggest porn company in the world. Uh, they were the ones who kind of started to gather film clips, uh, porn film clips and put them uh, out on these tube sites format online for everyone and then when kind of the 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 adult industry collapsed because of all these kind of free content uh, they started little by little to buy up the companies in in the adult industry so they became owners of most of the adult industry and they are owners of most of the tube sites that you can probably mention by name we don't have to mention them but we i know their names and you probably know their names you know uh and uh and obviously like in other businesses they are not really different from, you know, big pharma or big fashion or big data or, or big food. You know, this is a big company who, who are interested in, in traffic, in uh, money, in power, etc. They are not out there to show the world the most, the most you know, beautiful, uh, diverse vision of human sexuality. A final note from Erica, we have all a part to play with porn. I think that as consumers, we need to be aware of how the market works. Uh, so uh, I think that it's also important for us to realize that as consumers, we are part of the porn industry because I think that many, many people are saying that it's the producers and the people in in kind of working in the industry who are the industry, but it's not true. It's also the consumers. So if you are one of those people going on these tube sites during late hours at night or daytimes or whatever, you are part of this industry. And with your time and your clicks and your attention, you are showing the, the world and you are showing these companies where the, the values that you put into it. Needless to say, we as the consumer are also to blame. Across the board in all areas of life, we put our time, our clicks, our money into is constantly telling the world that we want to see more of this. So what are some of the issues we face when it comes to our sexuality and expressing ourselves fully? 
Here's a segment for our, from our episode with holistic sex educator Jenny Keane on the female perspective, something Dr. Kate mentions, as well as the issues of climaxing or orgasm, the elusive female orgasm. Those tips are so simple that you already know them, right? It, it, the tips are slow down, learn to remove the goal and the expectation of orgasm, right? Learn to pay high quality attention to yourself, to your partner, or to a body part, right? Um, and and but these things, right? And so it's they're very simple. Learn to breathe, right? Learn to connect with your breath. Learn to come from your mind into your body because that's where pleasure lives, right? But all of these tips are absolutely useless if you do not have the correct mindset first and the correct mindset looks like and then this this is again I always call I call it pleasure mindset right looking at your baseline beliefs and that those are looking at your sexual scripts those are looking at like uh, what I call the the productivity mindset versus the pleasure mindset that we live in a pleasure negative culture right that is really driven by the expectation to constantly be producing something and you only have to look at your life to understand how much of your day is driven by production right you wake up and you're like right I'm going to I have to do this this and this and this in terms of getting my family to school or something right I have to do this this and this this and work in order for my business to grow right so we're living in a culture that values goals right that puts an emphasis on pursuing and attaining those goals and really progressing towards those at all costs at all costs even and especially you know to the detriment of our health okay and and to the detriment as well to those things that actually bring us pleasure and so for for many of us pleasure really comes as a reward right only after we have achieved something right so we have a really good day at work you go home and you're like great I'm going to put my feet up and watch that movie right because if I haven't done a good day at work I'm going to bring my work home me I'm going to sit at the laptop and I'm going to keep going right so pleasure and we know this as well with like diet culture right it's like we're gonna we're gonna like exercise 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 not because it's healthy for our body but because we're trying to lose weight and if I've exercised for five if I've exercised five days this week right then I'm gonna have have a cheat meal on Saturday if I have the cheat meal on Saturday and I've only exercised four times or three times I'm now gonna beat myself up for having had that cheat meal right so pleasure comes as as a reward to working hard we're conditioned to believe that we have to do something to earn pleasure and it's almost like a stoic idea, ideology it's almost like, like a stoic that sense of like our association of pleasure is almost like you have to earn it it's quite stoic it's like it. you need Absolutely. pain before the pleasure comes as opposed to I think what you're suggesting the pleasure mindset is that we're entitled to pleasure it's part of the, the human form it's we have necessity. this body that can exp- it's a necessity, right? It's 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 central, right, to our lives. It helps us to, I mean, on a, on a physiological level, it helps us to regulate our nervous system. It helps us to complete stress cycles. It helps us to reduce pain. It helps. It's good for our immune system. Um, I mean, it's good for our health, right? It's good for our mental well-being, our emotional well-being. Pleasure is good for our relationships, right? And it's really necessary to our intimate lives. And so. It's learning how to start to recognize how this productivity mindset comes into play because it comes into play in our sex lives as well. Jenny hosts workshops with women to help them to learn how to orgasm. Is a common problem she sees in these workshops. 
I mean, for women as well, like, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that I would say when I, when I teach workshops, you know, I, there's a part of the workshop that I teach and I, I get them to, to write down and label the parts of their vulva. So this is on the outside, right? The vulva is on the outside of the, the body. And the amount of women that don't know all of the parts, that don't can't name all of the parts, if you can't name all of the parts and don't know where everything is, this is your portal to pleasure, your your the gateways to pleasure that you have access to. If you don't know where they are, you're basically like you're 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 like you're in a dark room, the lights are off, and you're trying to put a key in a keyhole that, that you do not know where the door is. Jenny's own story of how she became a holistic sex therapist is super interesting and exposes a lot of the way women are treated in the Western world when it comes to female issues, such as period pains, heavy bleeding, irregularities. However, we won't dive into that in this episode as we won't do it justice. This is an, an area deserving of its own episode. So to round things up, here we are with Dr. Aaron Spitz, a board-certified urologist and a leading expert in male sexual health and fertility, a.k.a. he is the cock doc. He literally wrote the book called The Penis Book. Being a urologist, Aaron deals with a lot of erectile dysfunction, amongst other issues. What's interesting is so much of what he teaches to his patients in order to improve their sexuality and edu- is educating them how their anatomy works. A lot of his patients respond to wishing they'd learned this stuff in their youth as opposed to learning it in their 60s. Even even then, you know, these these men in their 60s, 70s, 80s, executives, high powered, intelligent people have lived their whole lives with subtle little lies and and little urban myths that are always in in the back plaguing you. Because, you know, if it's not true, um, more often than not, it's probably more destructive than helpful. And when we walk around with these misconceptions about our own sexuality for years, stuff that we maybe even take for granted. And then one day we come across the truth about it. It's liberating. And, uh, you know, the younger you are when you can know the truth about your own body, certainly the better you're going to be for the rest of your lives. And, you know, just as true for sexuality as it is for heart health, brain health, our muscles, our bones. You know, kids are very concerned with their athletic performance, but, you know, they're also concerned with their sexual performance before too long. And the earlier they can get the right information, the better. Here's what he used to say about penis size, something that all men can relate to. The elusive, how big is your penis? Not that men talk about it, but many men, they carry this at the front of their mind. And any men who are kind of slightly self-conscious about it, you'll appreciate Aaron's comment here. So many men think that their penises are smaller than normal. And so even though they have sex and they have families, uh, in the back of their mind, there is this uh, constant uh, you know, knowledge that they are too small and they're just going to, you know, get through life anyway. And they don't have to have felt like that uh, or they don't have to feel like it. And then for some men, it's more crippling. Uh, it prevents them from having relationships. Uh, and that spills over not just into intimacy, but into how they conduct themselves in non-sexual circumstances with colleagues at work uh, or with with friends and family because of that misperception, that myth that their penis is too small. And men think their penis is too small because they really don't have much frame of reference. Uh, Most of the frames of reference that they look at are the frames in uh, pornography films. And uh, those feature men that are unusually large. That's why they're in those movies. Uh, But the average guy is uh is something that they're really not able to gauge how how many penises 
does an average guy look at? Uh, and the other thing is you've got the difference in the flaccid penis size. You know, for some men, the, the flaccid, the unerect penis is a lot smaller than another guy. But when they get hard, they're very similar. Uh, or sometimes this, the smaller one, soft, is bigger, hard, because our penises are comprised of tissues that are in different ratios of elastic tissue versus strong tissue. And the more elastic tissue you have, the bigger it grows, but the shorter it contracts. And the less elastic tissue you have, the more similar it is. And we're just built that way. We're, we're, it's a whole spectrum. But your average guy is not going to know all that. He's not going to see that. I've looked at thousands and thousands of penises. Uh, you know, that's my job. I'm a urologist. I work with dicks and assholes all day. That's what I do. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I've, got, I've got a very good you know, perspective on this. And it allows me to go home feeling better about myself too. Well, and is, is there any connection, like say with primates? Like, I just wonder as males, there tends to be this societal fascination or, or you know, a Probably obsession with size. Is there any evolutionary, like in primates where typically the alpha, the leader of the primates had a bigger size penis? Or is this just totally picked out of the sky and it's an insecurity that kind of marketing has really started to, to that Stephen profit on. Yeah. Um, I have never come across any literature indicating that the, the alpha male in a particular colony of primates was the one with the larger penis, but you know, there are theories about why penis sizes are what they are. And there is a theory that, uh, primates with larger penises may have been able to propagate their genes more successfully than primates with smaller penises because if the female primate was having um uh, uh was being was mating with multiple males perhaps the male with a larger penis was able to deposit the sperm deeper into the vagina and get it closer to the egg than the competitors but i mean the, the, these are anthropological theories that are very uh, let's say, um, weakly founded because, you know, sperm once deposited into the vagina is not, is not delivered by force to the egg. It deposits on the walls of the vagina, it liquefies, and then it travels along the walls of the vagina, then through the cervix to the egg. And so whether you deposit it at the cervix or whether you deposit it, you know, further out, I don't believe makes a whole lot of biological difference. And furthermore, when you think about things like intrauterine insemination, you know, which is done for couples that are trying to get pregnant and are having some challenges, that semen is not deposited further into the vagina. It's actually deposited through a little tiny opening, real tiny opening in the cervix with a syringe that can get through there to deposit the sperm. So if it was really an evolutionary advantage, you'd probably want the Primates that had needle dicks, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting segment is in the concept of adrenaline and sexual performance. Uh, erections don't work when there's adrenaline pumping through your system. So the harder you try to power, the harder you try to exert your will, the more adrenaline you have, the more pumped up you are, the limper your dick gets. Okay. So <laughs> adrenaline... So we use adrenaline to lift something heavy. We use adrenaline to, uh, to fight. Uh, we use adrenaline to excel in sports, uh, to cope with the stress of our, of our jobs, of our lives. Uh, 
whatever challenges. Adrenaline uh, um, allows us to make it through incredible challenges, but it is the exact worst thing possible for your erection. So when faced with a sexual in, uh, encounter, uh, this notion that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to man up and I'm going to power through and I'm going to hit it, the exact opposite. Because what happens is adrenaline causes our bodies to prepare for a physical challenge, something that might hurt us or overwhelm us that we have to overcome. And to prepare for that physical challenge, we need all the blood to rush to our heart and lungs and brain. And so our body with adrenaline is shunting all that blood to those vital structures away from the less critical structures like our fingers, our toes, and our penis. So when we have adrenaline pumping, the blood is drawn away from our penis. The blood vessels in our penis actually squeeze down so the blood won't go in there and it'll go to our heart and lungs and brain. And therefore, that manly, powerful, intense kind of a notion absolutely kills the erection. If you want to have a good erection, you've got to be relaxed. You've got to be mellow. You've got to be not the apex predator guy. You've got to be the relaxed, uh, caring, feeling, happy guy, Mr. Happy. That's why it's <laughs> name. So being a urologist and a male sexual health doctor, you can imagine a hot topic is ED or erectile dysfunction. Viagra is forecast to have sales of 4.8 billion for 2030, as apparently erectile dysfunction is on the rise. Erectile dysfunction or ED is naturally rises as people get older. However, it's also a really important indicator for something else. Here's Aaron explaining what that something else is. Canary in a coal mine is an apt description. Um, you know, canary is a lot smaller than a man and a lot more sensitive to uh, the noxious, uh, noxious chemicals in the coal mine than a man. And so it'll die before the men in the coal mine will. And the men will see that the canary is dead and say, oh, you know what? We have a problem. We couldn't tell. We didn't smell it. We didn't feel it. But the canary is letting us know there's a problem. We better get out of here. We better do something different. Well, that's how the penis is. Uh, your penis is a lot smaller than you. Um, and the blood vessels to your penis um, are a lot smaller than the blood vessels in your heart, right? Your heart is the key thing. If your heart goes, it's over. If your penis goes, you can still, you can still survive a long, long time, but you can't survive very long without your heart. And so the blood vessels to the penis are only one fifth the diameter of the blood vessels to the heart. But all the blood vessels in our body, penis, heart, arms, legs, wherever, they all um, are going to be healthy or unhealthy under the same influences, the same foods, the same medications, age-related, et cetera. So it takes one-fifth the time to block the blood flow to your penis than it does to block the blood flow in your coronary arteries. And erectile dysfunction is usually a condition of poor blood flow. It's a problem with the blood vessels in the penis. So when a man starts to notice that he's getting weak erections or is having difficulty keeping his erections, that means most likely that the little arteries in his penis are starting to get clogged off, which means that the arteries all throughout his body are starting to get clogged off. It's just that because they're bigger everywhere else, he's not feeling it. And he's not getting heart pain. He's not getting angina. He's not getting a heart attack yet but give it more time and that same process will have clogged off his coronary arteries, his heart arteries enough where he will get that chest pain or that heart attack. 
So that's why erectile dysfunction, which is a decreased flow of blood to the penis, was the canary in the coal mine that, hey, you better check yourself. There's decreased blood flow everywhere. And if you catch it early now, you might have a chance to prevent it or reverse it. To end on a positive note, Dr. Aaron patients cover all ages, including those in their 80s and even their 90s. Not a lot of couples in their hundreds, but I do have couples in their 90s where they are still sexually active. Now, they are not sexually active with great frequency. The frequency with which men and women have sex decreases with age, and that is a natural phenomenon, but they still enjoy it very much. So I may have an elderly couple that uh, has sex once every few months or a couple times a year in their 90s, but they really enjoy that intimacy. And then I might have couples in their 80s who are having sex weekly. Uh, and it really uh, can vary, but when they want to have sex, they're able to, yes, even in those advanced ages, but you know, it is going to be a minority of the patients uh, that I see. I find this series absolutely fascinating. I think we as a society, like if you look at any of the most resilient ecosystems, they're the most diverse. And similarly, as a society, we need to get into a much more accepting and much more celebrating of the diversity of all of us. And sex is a fundamental part of the human experience. It's something that without, we don't have more humans. And it's something that's almost hardwired into our DNA to want to procreate. And that's why we get such a dopamine rush. And that's why it's one of the greatest sources of pleasure in our modern day life. So I think the more, I think that one of my big takeaways is that the more we as a society can allow conversation around it, create safety that we can have these, talk about our vulnerability, talk about our insecurities, talk about our poor performance, talk about if you have erectile dysfunction, if you have premature ejaculation, if you're just nervous, if you're frigid, if there's all these things, talk, have a conversation. And the most important thing, which I'm still like fascinated by is the more we can create safety and safe spaces and accept each other, the more we can have these conversations. And the more we can have these conversations, the more we as a society can move beyond repression and find a more healthier approach to sex. Like I think on the topic of porn, like it's it's really obvious, like looking back, everything's obvious looking back retrospectively, but it's kind of really obvious that it came a repressed society naturally would create this undercurrent, this secret thing that people can look at their own phone or in, late at night or in the bathroom when they're quiet on their own and kind of explore their fantasy and explore all these, the different perversions in terms of, you know, sexual fantasies. So I, I think it's only natural and I think, Erica Luss' conversation around ethical porn, I think, is phenomenal. And the female gaze, it's something that I was never aware about. And growing up as part of this, I think this is, it's been really, really enlightening to me. You know, we had a great conversation with a friend, uh, John Fries. He's been a Buddhist monk for 12 years. And in a number of these conversations on the topic of sex, Dave always asks, and what about saving your seed? And John, who's a Buddhist monk, was all about that, how as a society, you know, the proliferation of porn he's big into astrology too and he was talking about we're, we're moving from pluto and scorpio where it was all about like porn and the exploration of sex and moving beyond repression to pluto in maybe it was sagittarius he was talking about you know i'm not as versed in astrology as john but it was fascinating he was talking about how as a society we have to move into where semen retention and not just ejaculation is really important where 
sex, we move beyond sex being about performance and about gymnastics, where it's much more about a heartfelt connection and where we can actually, sub, he used the word sublimate, which I, I prefer the word transcend this sexual experience into something that's spiritual, where we can actually start moving beyond the kind of imperial, logical, scientific, and not to say this isn't wonderful, yes, we do need this, but also where we can actually celebrate the mystical, the divine, the beauty, the coming together and the unity of sex. And I think that's something that is beautiful that I know very little about it I remember when I was early 20s um, I remember ordering this book and being quite embarrassed because we grew up in a sex negative environment uh, the multi-orgasmic man and being fascinated about it the fact that you could as a man could have multiple orgasms and it wasn't about ejaculation so I thought this was ground blowing blowing maybe is the inappropriate word it was groundbreaking and it was fascinating just to talk with john and he was talking about it like part of the reason why he anyway i won't get into john's personal story but amazing conversation john freeze you the man um so anyway i hope you found this podcast on a kind of summary of our exploration in the topics of sex hope it brought you some degree of comfort to actually listen to a conversation around it because i know when we started recording this episode I felt quite uncomfortable and even like saying it to my wife, we're recording an episode with a female porn director. And I was like, even for me, it was quite, you know, progressive to do it. So I think big shout out to the wonderful Sarah Fawcett. Sarah's mother, Melon, is from Sweden and they definitely really do. And Sarah's grown up in a wonderful kind of sex positive environment where it was okay to talk about these things. And I even like, I think Dave mentioned it in one of the podcasts where her dad came down one day at breakfast. Girls, I hope you're having enough orgasms because orgasms are so important for your health. And I thought that was like, wow that's pretty cool anyway i'm waffling on and i'm telling loads of stories here but i hope you found this interesting we have created and i say we sarah has created an email address uh, called podcast at the happy pair and we'd love to hear your feedback i believe we got one email last week and we celebrated and we read it each five times so thank you for the wonderful feedback and um you know wishing you a wonderful day ahead and i hope um yeah, I hope you got something out of this. We love this and uh, we hope you love it too. So wishing you a wonderful day ahead. Sending lots of love and here's to more sex positivity in our world. Bye. Bye, 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 b